that will carry us through most of the fall. First half of this year, we spent basically all our time in the Old Testament. For the second half of this year, we're going to spend basically all of our time in the New Testament. One of our commitments here as, as part of our general preaching diet is to, to give our church a, a balanced diet. The, the Bible is so full of goodness for us. Every bit of it is, is given by God to us to help us. We need it all. But it's wonderfully diverse. And one of the beautiful things about coming together to the Bible week after week is that we get a little taste of that diversity when we look to different parts of the Word for the help that we need. We've been in the Old Testament. Now we're going to be in the New. And, and specifically this morning, starting a series in, in John chapters 13 to 17. Why John 13 to 17? Well, every one of these four chapters occurs during the same night on Jesus' life, a night where he spent a a, a fateful meal with his closest followers merely hours before he would be arrested, beaten, tortured, killed for them. Every one of the gospel writers, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, as well as John, talk to us about this meal. It was important enough of an event in Jesus' life that all of them covered it. But when John gets to this night, when John gets to this meal, John slows way, way down for a street-level, blow-by-blow account of what happened that night. Why? Near the end of the book, John says, if you wrote down everything that Jesus did and said while he was here on earth... He says at the end of, his, of John's gospel, the world itself couldn't contain the books that will be written. There's too much. So he says, right at the end of his gospel, he chose to say what he chose to say. He filtered what he went through, what he heard, what he saw. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's agenda. John slowed down to walk us through the things Jesus said and the things Jesus did at this final meal with Jesus' closest followers because John believed if we were to believe, if we were to see the beauty and the power of who Jesus is, we need to see Jesus at work in his final moments on earth. We need to see what he did with these last hours. A few years ago, I was working on a writing project that that required me to spend a lot of time working through best-selling memoirs of people who were about to die. People who found some sort of diagnosis that shocked them and and helped them to realize that their life wasn't going to last forever the way they thought it was. People who were writers and so therefore describe what that was like to be living a normal, healthy, adult human life. And all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, learn that you've got terminal cancer, for example. Several memoirs talk about that journey. One of the things that struck me about these memoirs that that people facing an experience like that often said was that the nearness of death, the clarity and the immediacy of it changed what they saw of their lives. It brought a crystal clarity to what they were facing. It reinforced and maybe even for the first time showed them what really mattered When they knew that their hours were limited, it changed what they did with them. When they knew that they weren't going to live forever, they saw people and things in a new light. 
From the very first verse of John chapter 13, John is framing what's happening in this dinner party in light of Jesus' knowledge that he will soon die. He knew, John says at the very beginning of this chapter, that his hour had come. The whole book has been building to this moment. And with that backdrop, with Jesus' hour of his death on his mind, knowing as he knew with crystal clarity that his time had come, what was he thinking about? What would he say? What were his priorities for his friends with these final moments? And through his friends, for us. That's what we'll see as we go verse by verse through this incredible section of John's gospel. And the opening section, the beginning of chapter 13, frames the whole conversation. I want to read it for you. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word while I pick up in in chapter 13, verse 1. This morning, I'm going to read all the way through verse 30. Friends, this is the word of the Lord to us. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he'd come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him. What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher If I, your your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is God's word. You can be seated. Perhaps you notice at the very center of this text, verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples that he's given us an example to follow. Verse 15, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. There's the beating heart of this text. There's what we want to come away understanding this morning. And so with the time we have left, what I want to do is show you the example Jesus gave us. That's number one. And how we can follow it. That's number two. The example Jesus gave us. And how we can follow it. First the example that Jesus gave us. The example, uh, big picture, is this just scandalous act of service. Jesus washes the filthy feet of his own disciples. But there is way, way, way more going on with this act than the act itself. Before Jesus ever actually does anything in this story. Did you notice that John draws our attention to what's going through Jesus' mind? He draws our attention to what's on Jesus' heart. He brings us into the inner life of Jesus so that we can understand where this beautiful outer life comes from. And the example he set for us covers all of it, inside and out. What are we meant to see in Jesus? I see four things. And what John tells us here. Let me walk you through them one by one. Number one, in this example Jesus has set for us, John wants us to see Jesus' love. The first thing John tells us about Jesus, after he's told us that Jesus knows he's going to die, the first thing John tells us about Jesus is Jesus' persistent and costly and steadfast love for his own. Look with me back at verse number one. When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of of this world to the Father, when he has this crystal clarity that comes when you're staring at the end, what's on Jesus' heart? Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that beautiful? What a line. He loved them to the end. Think about it. John is telling us that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen. 
He's told us all the way up to this point that Jesus has chosen this path with his eyes wide open. Jesus is soon going to be arrested. He knows that. Jesus is soon going to be beaten within an inch of his life. He knows that too. He will be publicly humiliated. He knows that. A crowd of leering eyes will watch him as he is tortured and mock him for it. He knows that. And this will all carry on until, hanging on a cross, fighting for breath, he can't fight any longer, and he dies. He knows that. That's what he's facing in this moment. That's what it means that he knows his hour has come. And that physical suffering will be like nothing for him compared to what it would mean to face the pure and holy and necessary anger of God against sin, all of it resting on his shoulders. He knows that. I don't know about you, but when I'm facing something I know is going to be tough or painful, I have a hard time thinking about anything else. I space out. I stare off into the distance. I don't hear conversations that are going on around me. At my worst, when I know I'm facing something I can't dodge and don't want to go through, I'm completely absorbed with me. Other people, other responsibilities tend to fade to black. And I never faced anything like torture or death. Jesus has a much clearer picture of his future than I've ever had of mine. Right here, he's facing a much more dreadful future than anything I've ever had to face. But in this moment of truth, Jesus is thinking about his friends. Jesus loved them to the end. It is their interests, it's their needs that he has on his mind and driving his heart. That's what it means that he loves them to the end. That is some supernatural love right there. Before I go any further with this chapter, before we get further into the layers of this example Jesus has set for us, can, can I just pause right here for a second and make sure you see what this love means for your life if you're a Christian? This love that drove Jesus to his death didn't die with Jesus. He rose again with this same love for his own, alive and well in his heart. And the Bible tells us he not only died for his own, but he rose again for his own so he could care for his own, protect for his own, provide for his own, and bring his own all the way home to him. Now, it's from this same love that was so powerful that it dominated his heart when he was facing the cross that he looks at your life right now. Now, if this love could be so absorbing for him when he's facing death on a cross and the wrath of a holy God, how absorbing do you think it is for him when all that's behind him and all he has now out in front of him is an eternity of interceding for you? You can live your whole life in this love. You should. We were just saying about it earlier. Some of my favorite lines written about this love of Jesus. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. I love that. Underneath me, all around me is the current of thy love. Leading onward and leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. 
how he loveth, ever loveth, changes never, nevermore, how he watches o'er his loved ones. He died to call them all his own. How for them he intercedeth, watches o'er them from the throne. That's Jesus' love. That's what he's doing with his time right now. If he was doing that on the night of his death, he's still doing it now. You can bank on it. You can rest in it. If you belong to Jesus, he loves you to the end. There's another layer to this example that Jesus set for us. From his love, John takes us to Jesus' confidence, to his confidence. From the love that drove him to serve, John takes our focus to the confidence that that freed him to serve. Look at verse 3. Jesus knows that his hour has come. We've already seen that. He loves his own to the end. We've already seen that. But now John takes us back into his mind to show us that Jesus knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He knows that he's come from God. And he knows that he's going back to God. And it's with that knowledge, what God has set in front of him, where he's come from, where he's going, that he rises up from supper to do what he's going to do. This is another incredible line, another wide-open window into the mindset of Jesus at this crucial moment. I like to imagine him seated at the table, rolling these truths through his mind. He knew what the Father had given to him. He is the anointed one, the king who was promised. He knew where he came from, an eternity with God, where he was glorified as he deserved forever. He knew where he was going, that even though he had set aside the glory he deserves for a time, he was going right back to it to enjoy it forever. And he knew nothing could take this away from him. He knew where he stood with the one who matters most. And knowing that, he grips the table, he raises himself up, and he gets after it. Let's do this. Jesus' remarkable service rested on his confidence that he had an unlosable and untouchable place with his father. That's a foundation that can hold any weight you put on it, friends. Any weight you put on it. It is concrete over rebar on top of limestone. When he rises from supper, his feet are leveraged there on that confidence. That's how he can stand up under the burden that he knows he's got to carry. He knows he's got nothing to lose. He trusts himself completely to the one who's completely worthy of his trust. That's the second part of this example Jesus has set for us. Not just his love, but his confidence in his Father. And it's with that love driving him and that confidence under his feet that the third part of his example begins to come clear. His selflessness. He rises to give himself away. This is the core of the example Jesus gives to us in this scene. And I think to feel the weight of it, we got to do a little work to experience this scene the way his disciples would have experienced it. I mean, think about what we've just seen in verse three. It reads kind of like a resume, if you, if, if you will. You read it like a resume. He, he knows that the Father has given him all power. That means he, he knows he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the king. He knows that, that, that the Father has entrusted things to him. This world is his. He knows that he came from God. He knows that he's going back to God. And that's exactly where he belongs, on the throne of the universe. Everything that is exists for him. That's Colossians 1. That's built into John 13. And that's his resume. It's a great resume. And it's knowing all these things about himself that, verse 4, he sits back and asks his disciples to bring him a new drink. He puts up his feet and says, Ottoman, please. Now, it's with this resume as the backdrop 
that we see Jesus rise from supper, take off his garments, wrap himself in a towel, get down on his knees, and wash the stinking, filthy feet of these men who serve him. Nothing from the setup in verse 3 prepares us for the action of verses 4 and 5. Foot washing in the ancient world, I mean, it kind of grosses me out to think about washing my feet now, but back then, unthinkably disgusting. Had to happen because of where these guys were walking all the time, right? They were in sandals. They're walking not just in dirt, but in mud. And you know where else, you know what else was walking on these same streets that they were walking on? Got cows, goats, horses, animals. Animals that don't really look for bathrooms when they need to go. These men were walking with feet that were disgusting. And that's why commentators say, they they found evidence that in in the Jewish world, there was a a, a belief that even a Jewish slave should not be asked to wash someone's feet. That that would be reserved for Gentile slaves only. So that's what's in the mind of Jesus' followers. When they try to get their minds around what they see their Savior doing for them. This is the man who made all things, for whom all things are made, to whom all things are given, but nothing was beneath him. The question in his mind as he walked around on earth and as he bent down to serve on this night is not, what do I have coming to me? Let me make sure I get what I deserve. The question on his mind was, what do my friends need and what do I have to offer them? Their feet are filthy, that's obvious. I got a towel, I got some water, got a strong back, I'll stoop down and I'll wash them. Jesus' selflessness is our example. He is not preoccupied by what he deserves. And, to round out the picture, he's not preoccupied by what his friends deserve either. The fourth aspect of the example Jesus sets for us here is his grace. In his selflessness, he sets aside what he deserves. He's not worried about that. In his grace, he offers to them what they do not deserve. And that becomes clear in a couple places throughout this chapter. For one thing, you can see it in how John draws our attention to Judas. Did you notice how much Judas comes up in that, that section? Especially in the second half of what we read. Judas is everywhere. He's first introduced in the, in the second verse as this person who's going to betray Jesus. Where, where, where John is making it clear that Jesus knows what's happening. Then he comes up again in verse 11 where John tells us Jesus knew exactly who was going to betray him. Then he comes up again in verses 18 and 19 where Jesus says that somebody's going to betray him just as the scripture predicted. And then in that last paragraph that we read from, from verses 21 to 30, Jesus points out which one will betray him. And then in verse 27, he basically says, go ahead, get on with it. Go and do what you're going to do. Surely Jesus was wounded by this betrayal. I mean, of course he would be. This man mattered to him. But John wants us to know all along that he wasn't surprised by this betrayal, that he did nothing to protect himself from this betrayal. And and then right in the middle of it, right in the middle of all of this betrayal, even as it was going down, Jesus washes the feet of the one who would betray him. That's grace. That's grace. In a way, the same theme comes out even more clear through what John shows us about Peter. 
I mean, later on in this chapter, Jesus is going to tell Peter that he's going to deny knowing Jesus when the moment of truth arrives. Then near the end of the book, that's exactly what happens. This brash, would-be bold disciple who claims nothing will keep him back from Jesus no matter what he has to face, he abandons him when Jesus needs him most. And Jesus knows that. He washes his feet too. But in his conversation with Peter, we can see there is a deeper meaning to this foot washing than even the, the surprising act of service that it is on the surface. Jesus comes to Peter's nasty feet, and Peter's not having it. He's typically the one who's going to say what everybody else is probably thinking throughout the gospel stories, and he says it. He says, no chance you're washing my feet. But Jesus says to him in verse 7, look at verse 7, what he's doing now you won't understand until later. And then he tells him, Verse 8, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Peter gets the reference. He knows that Jesus is talking about an inheritance. This is the way they would have talked about the promises given to Israel for the future world God was going to bring in. He knew what it meant to have a share in that world. He was, he was seeing Jesus as the one who would make good on all those promises. And now Jesus is saying, if I don't wash you, you're not in me. You don't get what I'm bringing. And Peter, Peter, now he gets it. Now he wants it. What's this all about? Remember that, that John put this whole scene in the context of Jesus' death. That's verse one. He's been marching toward his death step by step for the whole book. And one of the things John helps us to see throughout this gospel is that Jesus likes to use tangible illustrations of the bigger, deeper things he's come to do spiritually. So in chapter six, he sees a crowd full of hungry people. He feeds them. And then he teaches them that if they feed on him, they will have eternal life. It wasn't just a flashy trick at a dinner party. It was meant to point them to a deeper reality. In chapter 11, he comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Lazarus is already dead. Everyone's mourning over that death. Jesus mourns too. But then Jesus says, come out. And he does. And Jesus teaches, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will never die. He's using this physical act to picture a spiritual reality. He does that a lot in John. And that's what he's doing right here in chapter 13. This washing of the feet is not just to get off dirt and muck. It's picturing a deeper washing, a cleansing from sin that Jesus, the final Passover lamb, has come to offer to those who trust in him. And if we don't turn to him for that cleansing and forgiveness, then we have no share with him. That's what he's teaching Peter. He's given us a picture, in other words, of his whole purpose in coming down to earth. And it's his amazing grace that drove him down, that drove his living and his dying and his rising again. In other words, Jesus gave up what he deserved to give to his own what they don't deserve. And that whole arc is pictured right here in this little scene in John 13. Now, in just a minute, we're going we're gonna to talk about what it looks like to follow this example as a church. But before we do that, we have to know, friend, you have to know, that until you've experienced the grace of Jesus for yourself, you cannot possibly follow the example of Jesus. It's too much. When Christians come to Jesus, they don't come to him as a guru with an inside track to a better life. 
We come to Jesus because we know better than to trust ourselves and our own power with a better life, no matter how wise the guru is who advises us. We're done with that. We come to Jesus to save us from us. And even though he offers us an example that we're going to look at together, that's not first and foremost what he came to do. He came to free us from the guilt and power of sin that then gives us what we need, that freedom to follow his example. And what John says about Peter right here, we get a super helpful look at what it takes to receive the gracious gift Jesus came to bring. It's not as easy as you might think. Grace can be more humbling than, than shame. One of the main barriers to receiving the grace Jesus came to offer, uh, Peter shows us in the way he responds to this foot washing. Peter's like, no way. You're not washing my feet. In other words, I, I don't want anything I don't deserve from you. You are above me in the pecking order. I am below you. I don't deserve this and I don't want it. But to connect with Jesus, you've got to get over that. You've got to be willing to let go of the shame that you might be holding on to as the only thing that's really yours when you look back over a life you wish had been different. And the only way you get to what Jesus offers is by acknowledging two things. I am that desperate. And he is that wonderful. I am desperate enough to take something I don't deserve. And my goodness, look at what he's offered to me. That's, that's where... Peter gets in his response as soon as he gets that he doesn't he can't be in Jesus he can't share what Jesus has offered unless he lets Jesus wash him if that's what it takes to get in on the eternal life in this kingdom he says wash me all over not just my feet wash my head wash my hands wash me do it as many times as you need to just do it do whatever it takes when, when Lindsay and I got married we were in college barely 20 years old with very 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 little money to our names and much to our surprise and delight, a very generous and dear member of Lindsay's family gave us a honeymoon getaway as a wedding present. It was one of those all-inclusive Caribbean resorts, and it was awesome. I took that gift. When they offered it to us, I thought about it for like zero seconds, and I took that gift. I said, thank you, thank you, oh, thank you, how can we ever thank you? Oh, my goodness, thank you. And we went, and we had a blast on that trip. Now, I might have rejected it, dug my heels in and said, nope, I'm not taking my bride anywhere I can't afford to take her on my own dime. At that point, it probably would have meant a one-night camp out at a tents-only site at a state park, and this was in December, and maybe I could have pulled that off if we shared meals. I was that desperate. But even more than that desperate, this resort was that wonderful. A free gift in an indescribably beautiful place with wonderful food, all we could eat, whenever we wanted it, an all-inclusive paradise. Yeah, please. Not my feet only, but my head and my hands. Just wash me, just get me there. Friends, you've got to get to that point when you look at the, the life you've made for yourself on your terms and realize, you know what, I am that desperate. And, and then you've got to hear what, what we're seeing, what we're hearing here. Like Jesus, he really is that wonderful. He loves his own all the way to the end. And he doesn't care that they don't love him like that in return. He knows full well what he's come to buy for himself. And he'll have you if you're desperate enough 
and see that he's that wonderful. And when you receive the grace of Jesus like that, well, it's only then that you're ready to follow the example that Jesus has given us. I want to just, in a few minutes, point you to the big strokes that John puts in front of us in verses 12 to 17. Here's how we can follow this example. Most of this passage we've read is is setting for what's still to come and plot that's moved along so that it all makes sense from here. But, But right in the middle of John 13, Jesus zooms in to make sure we take the point in what he's done for us. In verses 12 to 17, he says, do you get it? Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. A servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Right here in these simple verses, at the beginning of this final evening together with his friends, Jesus is laying a foundation for our local church. He's speaking to his followers, the foundation of all local churches everywhere. They're all in this room right here. And he's teaching them what his communities look like. When you serve this king, here's what you do. They needed to hear this for the same reason we do. In Luke's gospel, he talks about this same dinner. You know what he says they were talking about over off to the side whenever Jesus was doing his thing? The disciples were arguing with one another about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom when, his, when Jesus took the throne they knew he had coming to him. They wanted to make sure they ended up on the right-hand side of Jesus when he was sitting on that throne. Jesus knows he's going to that throne, and he's thinking about them. They, are, they know he's going to that throne, and they're thinking about them too. <laughs> who's going to be on the right? I think it should be me. And now you can imagine their shock when their savior that they have tethered themselves to, whose coattails they're trying to ride up to glory, gets down on his knees and starts washing their feet. Wait a second. I'm an apprentice to a, to a foot washer? So, so I'm the servant of the servant? That's not what I had in mind. That's exactly what Jesus has in mind, and that's what he wants for us. And the first thing we're going to need if we're going to follow his example The first thing I'd want you to see is that we've got to be intentional just like he was in pursuing service. We come into this community looking to serve. We don't have to wait to be asked, and we certainly don't sit back and observe how the service is going to us. Recently, at the uh, encouragement of many, many, many of you, our family tried out a membership in one of these big box discount stores that offer you everything ranging from a brand new kayak to a nice rotisserie chicken. Uh, We're trying it out for a year. And I guarantee you that in this membership that we have paid dues to enjoy, we are not the service provider. We are in analysis mode. Every time we go into this store, we're trying to decide, is this cheaper than what I could get at Kroger without paying anything? We're trying to decide, is the customer service good here? Do they come up to me and ask what I need? Do they know where the thing is that I need? Are they easily to find? How's the product selection? How's the convenience factor of getting there, you know, at different times of day? We are in analysis mode. We are sitting back, feet up, wash me with that membership. Because this is a business, and we will or will not support it with our money. Oh, friends, if you come to our church like that, 
if you come here to pay dues and see how the customer service is, if you come here and you sit back and wait for your feet to be washed, if we were all to do that, you know how many people's feet would get washed? Nobody's. We'd all be sitting back waiting. But if we all come in with the same intentionality Jesus showed right here, if we come in thinking, I'm the service provider here. Let me see what I can do to help. You know how many people get their feet washed in a community like that one? All 10. Out of 10, all 10. I want to be part of that community. Don't you? I love the fact that I am. I'm so encouraged by what I see you guys doing to serve one another. I don't mean just stepping up into volunteer roles around the church, as beautiful as that is, and boy, do we need you. I mean, there are always more volunteer roles to fill, and you guys are wonderful at that. I mean what I see in how you're pursuing one another on your own initiative because you love one another and because you love Jesus who pursued you first. The other day, I had the wonderful pleasure talking to a dear member of our church, Marvin Agee, who's been a member here since the 1940s, and he's recently had some very serious health problems, and he's in an assisted living facility, and as part of a new newsletter that we do each week for members in our church, he was spotlighted by one of our deacons, Tim Cornell. So, so those of you who don't know him yet could know more about his life and his background and have the opportunity to, to write to him, to encourage him, as he's now living most of his days alone. When I talked to him a couple weeks ago, he had just sent a note to our church to thank you guys for all the notes you sent to him, to encourage him and remind him that you're praying for him. Many of them from people who've never met him. Too many that he, so many that he, he said he couldn't respond to all of them individually. He just needed to send the card to the church so that I could pass it on to you. That is a beautifully Christ-like thing to do. This brother deserves to be remembered. You're remembering him, even if you don't know him. Because... Jesus remembered you. Jesus came to serve you. You saw a need. You filled it. Let's, let's carry on with that kind of intentionality, friends, please. Especially now while we're trying to claw our way back from what COVID did to our connections to one another. Now is the time to remember, I'm the service provider here. Who has a need? How can I meet it with something I have to offer? That's what we'll need. We'll also need hearts after Jesus' own heart. If we're going to serve like Jesus served, we're going to need to love one another like he loved his own all the way to the end, taking their interests as if they're our interests. We'll need confidence like his, a confidence that God has us, that we're his creatures and products of his grace and going to him and an inheritance that nothing can shake. We need to know I have nothing to lose and therefore nothing to protect where it really matters. And from that knowledge, rise up from supper and get after it when we see opportunities. We'll need that confidence. We'll need his selflessness. And we'll need, we'll need grace like his. I mean, heaps and heaps of grace towards those who may not treat us well. Sometimes when you're serving people in like a real world community with actual people who have actual names, it can kind of feel like hugging a porcupine, especially when they're hurting. You go in for the hug, you're going to get pricked. You may not realize, they may not realize what it costs you to serve them. You may only hear of how far you've fallen short in trying to serve them. You may even get blamed for problems that you were trying to help them with. Because hurting people hurt people. 
I know I do when I'm hurting. And nobody understood this better than Jesus. (laughs) Think about what he got when he came down here to redeem us from what we broke. Jesus' standard is anything for anybody. Anything for anybody. But to follow that standard, we'll need hearts like his. And if you're struggling right now to continue serving, or it's costing you something, or if you're seeing an opportunity to serve and you're feeling a hesitancy to enter in, you know, a practical thing I would encourage you to do is to talk to a friend about which of these four things in Jesus' heart might be weak in your own. Where's the breakdown? Is it love that sees their needs as yours? Their interests, their burdens as your own burdens? Could it be confidence that maybe you feel the need to protect yourself and there's fear about what would happen if you entered into the mess? Could it be selflessness is the breakdown and you're focused on what you deserve and aren't getting? Or could it be a need for more grace? Whatever you find when you go digging around in your heart, There's one more thing you'll need if you want to follow this example. You will need the help of God's Spirit. You won't just need to be intentional like he was intentional. You won't just need a heart after his heart. You're going to need the help of his Spirit to make you new so that you can do what he's called you to do. One of the things that I love and that still love most about this section and that's waiting for us at the end of this series is the prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17. In chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, he's teaching his friends what it will look like to live for him in his kingdom. And then he gets to chapter 17, and knowing all that he knows, he doesn't say, go out and do. He stops what he's teaching, he drops on his knees, and he spends a whole chapter praying to his father for his friends. Help them, Lord, he says. They can't do this. (laughs) I know what I'm buying here. They don't have it. Help them, Lord. It's a beautiful prayer. And it has to be our prayer. Not just for yourself, but for your church. When you pray through the directory, as I hope you do, as part of your disciplines, in our uh, 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 spiritual disciplines in your prayer life, I hope that one of the things you'll pray as you come name by name through our membership is, Lord, help that person serve Jesus in our church the way Jesus has served us. It's Herculean. It's too much for us. We can't do it. Help them. And when he answers that prayer as he loves to do, you know what happens? We all get to live in a community we can't even explain to ourselves, much less to those who watch. Because it's a community that is a creation out of nothing, death from, or life out of death miracle. That's the kind of community I want to be part of, don't you? And let's pray now that the Lord will use his word in this series to bring us more into line with his example so that he gets glory. Father, that is our prayer to you. Thank you for showing us what you want. Now we ask you to give us what you've commanded. Apart from your grace, we have no hope. But with your grace, backed by the power of your spirit in each of our hearts, we have all the hope we need. And we pray that you would reward this faith with fruit. For your name's sake.
In Jesus' name, amen.